Welcome to the IoT Security Podcast, powered by Phosphorus Cybersecurity, your source for securing the extended Internet of Things. Join the conversation with your hosts, Brian Contos and John Vecchi. Well, hello, everybody. You're listening to the IoT Security Podcast live on Phosphorus Radio. I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contos. And joining us today is Jason Tall. Welcome to the show, Jason. Welcome, Jason. Great to be here. How are you guys? Well, awesome. we're real. We're great. And we're real excited to have you on, man. So thanks for uh, thanks for giving us some of your time. My pleasure. Jason, as we kick things off, could you give our listeners a little background about you and how you came up in cyber and what exactly it is you do today? I'll give you the short answer and we can drill down uh, where, where you want some additional details. Sure. I don't think I'm the guy, but I'd humbly suggest I'm one of the guys. And, and that's only because of, of, of the accident of my birth, what year I was born in, where computers were at that day. Uh, my first computer had no hard drive. Um, it had no keyboard and no monitor, right? It was a, it was a CPU and a processor. And I learned uh, how things worked, much like the t- old term hackers, you know, I, people that take things apart and, and to figure out how they work. Uh, so I was really there seeing how everything was built. I was one of the first people uh, on the uh, ARPANET before we before Al Gore's uh, legislation made it available for commercial purposes, uh, and I can remember thinking, "Wow, I'm going to get I'm going to get left behind. This internet thing is is crazy, and I and I better get smart about it." It's the only thing I've ever done. I, I went my first job out of school uh, was with uh, Booz Allen and Hamilton. Uh, 1986, the Computer Security Act got passed, and a bunch of federal agencies didn't have uh, programs for their EDP, or we didn't even call it EDP then, we called it uh, AIS, Automated Information Systems, right? So this is the the late 80s. Uh, My folks at at the team at Booz gave me a copy of the Rainbow Series and said, stay a chapter ahead of the customer, right? And now I'm a security expert because I've done a couple of these projects. After a while, I I did get pretty good at it, and uh, I had the very good fortune of working with and for some of the, the smartest, best people. Um, I helped build the VA's program. I helped build NASA's program. And I learned really important lessons at each one of these. So, for example, if, if you're NASA and you've set something in orbit that's going out to the edges of the solar system and it has a vulnerability, guess what you're not doing? You're, you're not pushing a patch to that thing and restarting <laughs> it because you might, you know, take take all of the investment and, and spoil it if the thing it's doesn't Tuesday, restart. It's Tuesday, time to take the satellite down. Exactly. Um, <laughs> So uh, I followed one of the partners that I had worked with, you know, one of the the good mentoring things that that, that, to tell young kids today that are coming up is, is align yourself with, with good people. And so when he left and went to another opportunity to start a consulting firm, he said, Hey, would you like to be the cyber guy? You can come here. You're not competing with anybody else. And and I, and I went and then I ran and built a a multimillion dollar practice for one of the international consulting firms. I expected that at some point, one of my customers and I would, would come to a marriage where they liked me and I, them, Um, that happened. Um, and this is again, the late nineties. Now I was one of the first people to become a CISO in any company, anywhere. FISMA had come out and I worked for a company that built systems for a, uh, for the Department of Health, Medicare in particular. Huh. So now I had this whole federal mandated program where you've got to get a system accredited, earn its right to operate, go into, get its authority to operate and then remain free from compromise. And I was able to leverage all those experience along the way. I followed that for about 25 years because the government then started spending more on healthcare than we do on defense. Um, and if you think about it, you know, it's kind of crazy that the two biggest buckets of sensitive healthcare information in the country or sensitive identity information right here in Maryland, by the way, we've got one group called Social Security and the other one's called Medicare. One's got uh, data on every person in the country, every citizen. And then the other one's got certainly the, the two thirds of the country that's on Medicare or Medicaid. How is it that those programs haven't been breached yet? I have an answer. It's not that we're that good. It's that most hackers don't know what a mainframe is. Uh, and I know it's supposed to be cloud first, but thank God those major systems are still uh, on, on mainframe systems that are they're very well secured. I got recruited away by one of the standards bodies. That was probably one of my most exciting uh, uh, career opportunities because now I could take all the pain points that I and other CISOs that I had worked with had 
because the, the need to, to, to audit yourself or the need to report your posture to somebody else is pretty universal. We're, we're all realizing this with the, you know, the solar winds and the supply chain issues that, that have all come up. Now we're talking about S-bombs and, and a whole different uh, way to, to, to exchange information. Well, uh-huh. um, a soccer report wasn't exactly the best way of doing it, right? So I could take these pain points and say, well, this control requirement I keep getting a finding on it because it's not clear what I'm supposed to do or the auditor didn't understand what I was supposed to do or the person who needed to accept the report didn't understand because we didn't have consistent scoping and terminology. So we were going to try to achieve that kind of clarity. Um, I I think I made uh, some meaningful progress there. And then now I'm in the third third of my career where um, I'm giving back. Um, I'm a virtual CISO. Uh, I support a number of different organizations. I have a customer in the agricultural sector, one in heavy manufacturing, one in healthcare. And then lastly, I'm also the CISO in residence at one of the incubators in the state. And that's really interesting because it's a very different set of drivers for a small to medium-sized business. And I'm able to look at, well, what are the things that are different and unique to each of those sectors? But it's surprising how much is the same. Uh, uh-huh. Especially when it comes to things like IT, which I, uh, and OT, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit. But the the agriculture sector has it. The the, the hospital biomedical uh, engineering devices and healthcare sector it's all over the place. And you've every manufacturing, all of the manufacturing stuff. A lot of it has firmware. A lot of it's on network, uh, and it has these issues. And and frankly, if if, if we're not addressing them, we're, we're leaving the bad guys far too many opportunities to 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 get in. So, Jason, that's a a really fascinating journey. I'm wondering, being a, a virtual CISO, what's your day-to-day like? And are you interacting as much with the executive leadership team and the board like you would as a traditional CISO? Or are you, you know, working with the technical teams and the IT group? Or is it a combination of everything? Wow, um, that's a six-hour uh, uh, essay <laughs> to, to answer that question. Um, so let me start by saying a couple of things that I've learned, which is that the CISO role is 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 consistent in its objectives, company to company, but it's very different one company to the next. It, uh-huh. it has to be attuned to the company and the culture, um, the balance that you have to achieve in terms of the risk appetite that, that the leaders and the boards have. Certainly, it's also driven by the, the nature of the information that they have, whether it's regulated, and increasingly, what what the the your customers. I'll use that term generically. What their expectations are, because Look, this is 2024. I can't imagine many business interactions where I'm not sharing my data with you. And I want you to show respect for me. And increasingly, the privacy question, which is the other side of the security coin, is is factoring into it. So whether I'm wearing that hat or not, I still have to support those objectives. So the role varies with each organization and what they want. For some, I am the CISO, uh, uh, not a VCISO. I am the CISO. I, I evaluate contracts. I negotiate terms with vendors. I oversee the program. I have budget authority. I have signing authority, et cetera. Others, it's more of a CISO advisory role. And in some respects, the, the goal is over a series of, of, of years, perhaps to put myself out of a job, right? Help them figure out where they are, where they need to be, and then develop a plan to get there. I think the big advantage of the, the virtual CISO model over an internal CISO is you get the benefit of the, the lessons learned, the battle-hardened uh, experience, but you're not paying for that person on a full-time basis if you don't need it. Um, <laughs> Typically, once we figure out where we need to be and we have those programs, I'm overseeing the implementation, but I've helped the organization identify or bring in technically competent people to do that implementation. The The challenge, of course, is helping the organization who's newer to this, that hasn't spent a lot of time thinking about it. In my opinion, the CISO's role is not to say yes or no. The CISO's role is to inform the conversation. The leaders of the company, the board, they're the ones that should be and do, you know, the men and women say yes and no to things every single day. It's okay to accept a risk, a cybersecurity risk, if there is awareness of its existence and you find it to fall within acceptable limits. It's not okay to accept one by default because they're not aware it exists in the first place. So that's where my job, whether I'm an internal CISO or a VCISO, um, is first to make sure that they have that awareness. Then they often will seek my opinion because they don't know how likely it is. Um, uh-huh. I, I'm not the, 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 I think the journey's also changed a little bit over the 30 years, not just with the migration from traditional CISO to virtual, but the, the understanding of the people with whom I partner. 
initially, it was, I was chicken little. I was saying something was going to happen that they didn't believe was going to happen. You know, does this even happen was the question. Yes, here's the data. Now, then it was, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Uh-huh. And I don't know that he was the first person to say it, but the first person I heard it from was Bob West, who was the, the first CISO at Homeland Security when that first got put together. He said, no, there's only two kinds of companies out there. Those that are in hacked and know it, and those that are in hacked and don't. Which one are you? Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I actually had a board member uh, on one of the boards I, I, I served say, well, if, if breach is inevitable, why are we investing anything if it's a, an exercise in futility? Well, the answer that I had in my head, <laughs> not the one I gave out loud, was, well, so-and-so, uh, it's because there's a difference between negligence and gross negligence, and there's a difference between a fine and going to jail. You know, ask Joe Sullivan, you know, what, what he thinks about uh-huh. that right now. So, a- again, you, you have to help them understand it is a partnership. Uh, let me give you an example of the, the evolution. The first time I had to present to a board, um, I belonged to a CISO roundtable. Actually, I'm drinking for, drinking for their cup today, uh, the CISO Executive Network. And I asked my peers, this is my first time going before a board, what, what can you tell me? What are the lessons learned? And they all said the same thing. Five slides, or three slides, five minutes. I said, I get that. But what do I say? What do I put on those <laughs> slides? Because you know, it's really hard to, to manage uh, uh, expectations at, at that level of aggregation. I looked around and I realized what everybody was doing, and I think a lot of CISOs still do this, and it's probably one of my biggest lessons learned, your job is not to go to the board and beg for money. I mean, that's an encapsulation of what happens in a lot of cases. No, your job, and, and what I did for the first board presentation, the, the IT Governance Institute from ISACA, I don't know if they're still around, but they had this set of survival kits, they called them. And it was a list of questions that every different level of management in the organization was expected to have answers to. So the one for the board said, here are 17 questions the board of directors are expected to, to be able to answer. So I laminated, I put it at everybody's seat at the, at the boardroom, and I said, what questions do you have for me? I'm not here to present to you. You tell me what level of appetite you have, what level of expectations you have about our posture, how aggressively you want to close any gaps, and most importantly, what level of funding you would like to give me so that I can help you fulfill your responsibilities. Well, I took that role as an inside CISO, and that's very much the definition of the virtual CISO. So in that regard, it hasn't changed. I think what's changed, um, when I was a federal contractor, one of the things we were required to do is certify that our policies and procedures every year had remained adequate and, or were updated to address changes in the way we behave, new technology, and the evolving threat landscape. So perfect example, a couple of years ago, the world went work from home under COVID. Now we're dealing with return to the office. And what do those questions mean? And how do, how do we do that in a way that, you know, is it through virtual technology? There are all those, all those solutions that we had to work in. All the, so that was a paradigm shift. Now everybody in the mother's worried about AI. Uh, you know, and, and honestly, I don't care about the technology. I'm always concerned about how we use the technology. And, and is there a false sense of security? There is an overall flattening of culture right now. Um, I remember my wife and I wanted to buy a dining room table. And my wife has this somewhat misguided belief that everybody in our family should be able to sit at the same table. Well, okay, big family. I mean, that's a big table, right? You go online, look for big coffee tables. It's the same six tables. I don't care what the vendor is. It's the same six tables. That, there's no choice. Well, that flattening of culture that, that is the internet, right? We all get the same feeds now, um, if that's how the AI engine works, the results uh-huh. are based on, a, frankly, it might be a large language model, but it's a limited large language model. Um, how do we ensure that it's got the benefit of, of the full perspective? To me, that's a question of, of, of how we're using the technology, not necessarily the technology itself. So the other thing yeah. to, to answer your question, Brian, is there's, there's different kinds of CISOs. We all say we're not supposed to be the doctor. No, don't say no to things. And, and I don't. Um, I am empowered to say no to some egregious things, but for the most part, it's tell me what you want to do. Tell me your business objective. That's going to get a business strategy. It's 2024. Hard to imagine a business strategy that doesn't have an IT strategy. And now once we've articulated that, now we can say, if you want to do that, that's going to expose us to these risks. If you're not okay with those risks, here are things we can do to buy that down to an acceptable level. If you're not okay with the risk or you're not okay with the spend, then let's revisit the strategy or if necessary, go all the way back and revisit the objectives. That's the conversation. Yeah. And, you know, Jason, it was, you mentioned before you were talking about the fact that really depending on the company, 
your job will differ, right? What, what's the company do? What's their objectives? Like you just said, some of those questions you asked the board, I mean, those are different for different companies. So you've got kind of that uniqueness of the CISO role based on the company. But on the other hand, you've also been at a lot of different types of companies in different industries, right? Whether it's public sector, you said manufacturing, healthcare, finance. Can you talk a little bit about when you add in different industries, what kinds of challenges is, does that present to sure, CISOs sure, sure. on top of that, right? Sure. So the, the first one is the, the jargon and the, and the vocabulary of an industry can be very specific. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, healthcare is a perfect example. Uh, IT existed long before it had made major inroads into the delivery of care. Yeah. Uh, we in IT had terms for things that weren't in existence within the hospital. Then the hospital started coming up with their own terms for it, right? Informatics, right? Well, what does that mean? Is that IT or does that mean something else, right? Uh, when we say risk management, that means something to us, but that means slips and falls to a hospital. So a lot yeah. of times you're using the same vocabulary. So you got to work through the vocabulary. Uh-huh. Ultimately, though, Again, going back to that, tell me what you want to do, and I'm going to. My role as a CISO is to find a way to 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 enable us to do that without putting us or our customers and the data at risk. Um, what varies is the ability to go after that. Frankly, uh, the healthcare sector operates on very thin margins. Uh, as an industry, it came off of probably the worst financial uh, year in, in in recorded history because the COVID bill came due. And when it happened, uh, we didn't look at costs. We said, we got to take care of people, do whatever it yep. takes. Well, that bill's come and due now. So it's competing with other things. Um, the agricultural sector, I really thought I was going to have to talk farmers into buying security. I was I expected to have a hard time saying, I work in the dirt, I grow things, that's not a complex problem, I don't need cyber. Well, uh-huh. you bet they do, and they want it. I was really surprised. So if 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 you think about farming, and I don't mean the small farmer, I mean big farms now uh-huh. run, that John Deere tractor is, is run by a GPS, you know, yep. it, it's got, you know, it's not a farmer driving it, let's put it that way. And frankly, the farmers want it because and I bring up John Deere because they were hacked uh, a little over a year ago. I think it was. I mean, why would and allegedly it was the Chinese? Uh, I don't know anything. Why would they do that? I don't know because they have a couple billion people they need to figure out how to feed. So this goes back to understanding the why. Does this happen? Uh-huh. Absolutely. And if you take the morality out of it, it's actually a financially prudent strategy. I need to figure out a solve a solution to this problem. It's the same problem you've already solved. I'm just going to borrow your good idea, your solution. Why would I invest a decade of time and God knows how many billions in R&D if I can just, what are you doing to maximize the yield per acre or for, for a crop? Because I can get that data off of how you irrigate your fields or what chemical mix you use or what your tractors uh-huh. are doing. So the farmer doesn't want to have to drive 200 miles to change an, uh, you know, a, an irrigation setting. They want to do it from a keyboard. Well, if I can do it from here, they can do it from the other side of the world. So they're eager for it. So the problem is, and, and, and I, I, I don't want to focus exclusively on OT, but shame on me, shame on you, shame on all of us for allowing IT and OT to evolve in parallel. Yeah. You know, separately. That's crazy. Separately. I don't know how we did this. I don't know what I thought OT was, um, but certainly in the energy sector, they're probably ahead of most because there have been long since with, with SCADA and other purposes. Plus, the, frankly, the energy sector is the most demanding, especially on the nuke side. But they're using uh, IT to manage their OT. They certainly have interconnected them. Well, yep. most organizations, f- firmware? Look, I, I was a federal contractor. The, the FISMA rules that we're all subject to say you must, wherever it says you must scan for or you must patch, or you must fix, it says hardware, software, vulnerability. Okay, well, we all took care of hardware. Then we eventually got around to looking at software vulnerabilities. We ignored firmware like that word wasn't even on the page, right? Yep. Uh, and if you say to the vendor, hey, I found something, if you, if you could even get them and get their attention, what are they going to say? They're not going to say, well, here's a patch. They don't operate the way Microsoft and all the other vendors do with, with IT. There's no patch Tuesday for, for, for OT stuff. Their mm-hmm. answer is, well, you got to buy a new version of the thing. Well, but the thing still works fine. It's a large, I don't know, i got a manufacturing customer. they got a large uh, a steel cutting uh, laser CNC machine that's running SMB 1.0. Can you say WannaCry, right? Uh, and so if you talk to the folks, yeah, well, they're like, well, uh, this not on the network. It's not a problem. Oh, okay. Uh, I said skeptically. Uh, it's not on the network. So the CAD guys, when they come up with a new design, how does that get over here to this machine to, to do its thing? Oh, I guess it is. You know, is the guy going to come over with a thumb drive and plug it in? Oh, of course. And of course it's on the network. 
So then the next question is, well, what do you think the guy's going to do? You think a bad actor is going to hack into this and cut his girlfriend's name out and steal? Uh, no, it's an access point that people can use to gain a purchase point and then move east-west horizontally into the data network. Uh, you know, ask, uh, I forget whether it was Target or Home Depot, but they had a, an, uh, an exploit because somebody hacked into their HVAC systems. Yep. So there is those kinds of demands in terms of the, the stuff of security, frankly, has remained largely the same. It's just a question of the stuff to which we need to apply those controls. Yeah. Yes, I have to apply it to hardware, and I have to apply it to software, and I have to apply it to firmware. Um, we had most of everything figured out. Um, I will tell you that the, the, the government contracting has changed. They now tend to award things to the low-price, technically acceptable solution. Back in the day, it was best value. And back before the expectation was that you had your own security program, if a customer wanted cyber and they told you you had to meet it and pointed to some sort of regulation, you could charge. That was part of your cost. So I could align with the business and help earn our award fees. And I can remember the CMS in particular measured what they cared about. You couldn't get 100% of your award fees if you had any high findings. Well, that's a great way for me to demonstrate value. I'm not a tax and operation if I can help the company earn its revenue. So what do we have to do? We'd gotten to a place where I had no high findings. I had 100% vulnerabilities patched. I mean, imagine that today. I don't know anybody, and myself included, who can say that anymore. You used to be able to come in, figure out where you were, figure out where you need to be, and put together a plan. Over two or three years, you would close the gap, and then you would be in maintenance mode. I don't know that I think the end state is moving away from us faster than most organizations can reasonably make progress towards that goal, unless you have huge unlimited budgets and none of us have that. So that's yeah. a change. Now it's a much more um, uh, deliberate decision about how we allocate scarce resources. It didn't used to be that way. Then we moved everything to the cloud. I get why we did it. But remember, I have the legacy of being there at the beginning um, I got shipped off and was part of the team that went to Carnegie Mellon to help build the original commuter emergency response team when we started using the internet because we understood that this could become you know, a, an important thing upon which we had critical dependencies. And if it didn't work, it would have catastrophic results. Well, if 100% on-prem, which led to the invention of the internet or the creation of the internet, if that was wrong, then 100% in the cloud <laughs> is wrong for the same reason. So let me come back to my agricultural customer. My, my, my manufacturing customer, their computer systems can be completely down. As long as I've got power, the machinery in the plant can continue to make things. So they're able to still contribute to revenue. Hospital, the exact opposite. Um, I don't know if most people think about this, but the heavy, the heavy regulator in the hospital space, in the healthcare space, is not HIPAA. It's the Joint Commission that accredits the hospital. And ever since the dawn of technology, they've had this basic rule that says you have to, as a hospital, have the ability to continue providing services in the complete absence of tech. Well, I what if the cloud's up, but I can't get to it because I had a fiber cut? That stuff still happens, yep. right? All of us are working from home now. Well, I don't say all of us. Many of us work from home. Many of us rely on that local, uh, whoever your, 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 your local internet provider is. Local internet providers who still know well, still know, still think they know the right time to patch things. I, regularly, my, my internet provider still thinks 12 noon on a workday is the perfect time because nobody's supposed to be home in your neighborhood at noon. Well, we're not in the workforce anymore. We're, we're here at workforce at home. You can't take yep. me down in the middle of the day. You disrupt my comms. You disrupt my process. So I think we need to have solutions that build resiliency. To me, that's a big, much bigger changes. And, and, and the yeah. more resiliency I can build in, the better. Uh, one last thing is aging infrastructure, uh, and, and it, it, it's everywhere. Some organizations and industries have it more so than others. So a, a lot of the reason it persists is not that I don't want to run, uh, that, I, that I want to run 2008 server, uh, I want to continue running. It's that the thing that's on top of it still works fine, uh -huh. but it won't run on a newer version, a later version of the operating system. So what do I do? Do I buy a new version of that thing just because the underlying tech no, I, I, but that's why I want to keep it on-prem. And then, of course, you have Microsoft that's trying to use nothing against them. I understand why they're using, trying to use their dominant position in the office suite space. They want to drive you into the cloud. If you're not in Azure, at least AD, home to Azure or, or hybrid, right? You can't get things like LPAS, that whole thing that happened last March where, where that thing stopped working. We, the answer is you got to go hybrid, you got to go to the cloud. Well, not if it's a 2008 server that I got to continue to run. I need to have that inside with no public access. So. 
those are some of the challenges that we're dealing with. You know, I do want to talk because because it's you guys. I do want to talk a little more about the the OT challenge in particular. Um, yeah. Can we can we go there? Do you have any questions about yeah. that? Yeah. Well, Jason, before we jump right, I, I, I do want to hit on a couple of things uh, as it relates to healthcare providers. So, you, you know, we've worked with a lot of healthcare providers, and one of the things that we discovered, and you're probably well aware of, most of them start with about a 15% deficit because they can't refuse care. So this was even before COVID. So to your point, they have really, really small margins, um, uh-huh. even compared sometimes to uh, retail, which has very, very thin margins. Right. Now, the health care payers, the insurance side, the sciences, the pharmaceutical, sometimes that's a little bit different. But speaking specifically to the providers that have a lot of traditional uh, IT, but they certainly have a ton of IoT, uh, digital door locks, security cameras. And on top of that, they have medical IT devices as well. These, these sort of internet of medical things, if you will. Given the explosion of these types of connected devices and how critical many of them are, given the margins that healthcare providers generally have, and now to your point about post-COVID, the bills coming due, well, now they have this massive footprint of tech that may or may not be secure, probably not. When you're having conversations with these teams, with these boards and executives, are they able to understand and prioritize the need to invest in security as it relates to these devices? Or are they like, we, 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 we've got some big bills to pay. We're going to have to continue to put this on the back burner, even though we understand that the risk profile is really high. Or, and I'm hoping you're going to say this, they get it and they understand they are prioritizing these because it could have a direct impact on patient care. Wow. So let me start high level and, 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 and gradually narrow in. So you're right. There, there is a, a substantial difference in the healthcare industry. The payer and provider is, is schizophrenic. Uh, the providers have, frankly... Traditionally, a lower posture than the than the, the 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 payers. The payers are in the insurance business. Insurance is about risk management. It it flows. They they tend to have greater revenue, so so they're in pretty good shape. The providers, uh, although um, you know, if you've seen one hospital system, you've seen one hospital system. There there are similarities, and there are certain dominant players that are helping to address a lot of these issues. But I, I don't know that you can you can extrapolate what a board does and doesn't know from one one health system to the other. I think there are a couple of challenges that all CISOs face, however. Number one is getting that attention. So they're going to say, okay, I get that there's this other thing that we're supposed to be managing. I get that if it's left unmanaged, it could provide the means for, for that unwanted data spill or compromise. How big is the problem? Well, do you have asset management? Does it incorporate all of your, your IoT stuff? Probably not. Right. So right off the bat, if you're trying to give them an expression of risk, because that's what it's about, you know, most of them, yes, all of the ones that I work with, certainly we take a risk triage approach, just like you do in the, in the emergency department. This is our biggest risk. Uh, and frankly, um, for, for a time when I was the CISO over at CSC's public health sector, we had a contract with OCR. So OCR, as many people know, are the, is the Office for Civil Rights. That's the part of the health department, Department of Health, that, that enforces uh, HIPAA. Uh, there's seven or eight people in that office. It's a very small office. They, they leveraged other resources. So my team, anytime a complaint was filed against an organization, a covered entity or business associate, we did the initial investigation. And we said, okay, first show us your risk assessment. Some people, it was a flimsy little piece of paper. Others, it was, it was a comprehensive document. So the substantial difference is there. I think most organizations now know in healthcare, you got to have that document. It needs to say, here's what my risks are. Here's where I need to be. And here's my plan. And as long as you're continuing to make forward progress, gradual risk reduction, I don't think you're going to get a lot of trouble. The market could punish you if you still have a breach in between. But, but generally, OCR is not trying to generate revenue for itself. It's about improving, uh, helping hospitals improve their posture and, and showing respect for, for patients' data. If the organization has the appropriate segmentation between their data network and the other networks or network, then you can afford to be more permissive. If there's no segregation, it's all on one big, you know, messy network. Now it's a much bigger problem. So, you know, different organizations operate differently. Some healthcare systems were also comprised of multiple hospitals that may be one system in, in name or may actually be in one system at the network and the technology level. So again, you got different levels of maturity there that will influence that outcome. I think most most boards have a, an acute understanding uh, within the last few years. This OT has been my soapbox issue probably for 10 or 15 years. 
Um, it is it has not been one that I've been able to do much about. In fact, one of the the government customers that I supported, uh, many of their contractors were getting findings, and they were out to issue a technical direction letter, which was about to give them the freedom not to have to worry about just patch hardware and software. You can ignore firmware because there were no tools available to do anything with it. Hang on. There were some tools. Um, I happen to be part of, again, because of the fact that I'm in the Mid-Atlantic, there's a technology transfer program between some of the local uh, cyber folks and, and Fort Meade and NSA. If NSA has technology that they want us to benefit from, they, they will help facilitate this transfer. So there was a company called Refirm Labs that came out to start scanning this stuff. Uh, as of course, as many of your listeners will know, that's one of the several companies that Microsoft bought to underlie their Defender for IoT program. So I eagerly awaited that because if I could get that capability under under my E5 or my, my, my enterprise pricing with, with Microsoft, why would I separately leverage or try to acquire, configure, and deploy another tool? Well, it came out, and let's just say I was underwhelmed. It doesn't find everything, and as, as you guys know, it focuses more on helping people find than fix. So again, now, now you go looking for other tools, which of course is how I came to, to you guys. Um, I think... There are trade-offs. Um, again, if you go back to understanding what you have, managing it, and, and in some cases you are going to choose to accept the, the risk and be a little more permissive. Um, in other cases, you're not, but it, and, and there are multiple ways of solving the problem. Again, you can if you've got defense in depth and you've got the segmentation in place, you can be afforded to be a little more permissive and then watch those interconnection points. Um, the thing that really concerns me is that Hospitals in particular, I, I don't want to be uh, um, disparaging of them, but given the many things competing for their, their attention, they tend to roll over a little bit on vendors and do what vendors say. Vendor says, for this to work, I need you to punch a hole in the firewall. Uh, okay, yeah. so you want persistent access, a VPN 443, you want that on a persistent basis? And I give you an account, but now that person left and you're sharing that account with somebody I don't know. And, <laughs> and I'll give you an example of a vendor that I no longer work with. Um, Epic is the, this is not the vendor. Epic is the, is the example to, to, that others seek to model. Um, as, as you may know, they're the electronic health record in, in, in use in a lot of systems. They give their customers a report card on, when, on how well the customer has secured and configured their instance of Epic, right? That, that's amazing that there's a company, not only do they care about security, they're telling you there's a true partnership here. You need to change these settings. You're doing things that might be a little permissive, a little too risky. That's a great idea. That's a well, really so, good idea. So another company said, hey, I want to do the same thing. So what do they do? They, they build a capability to evaluate the configuration of their asset. They deploy it. This isn't come to market yet. They deployed it into my instance. Well, this thing's collecting data and it's sending it back to them. Well, if you don't understand that that's what's happening, that has all the markings of, of out exfiltration outbound C2. So, of course, our guys get all spun up. It escalates to me. We decide, do we have an event? We, we try to work through it. We, we, we do have uh, an investigation that's going on. First thing we do is we contact the vendor. The vendor says, it's not us. Oh, that's worrying. I'm about to engage leadership and invoke an incident response. When I said, do me a favor, just because, again, I've been around the block a couple of times, and it's been my experience that much more often than not, things that, aren't, that seem to be incidents are usually somebody trying to do something well-intended, but, but failed to execute or think it through completely. So it turns out it was this vendor. The people that we had talked to were the sales folks and the, and the relationship managers. They hadn't been briefed on this new capability because it hadn't been fully built yet. The developers, look, you don't test something in your own production. You certainly don't test in a customer's production instance. And they did it because we'd given them access, but they didn't involve our change management protocols. All the things that they were supposed to do, they didn't do. Now, hey. I've got a lot of things to worry about, and I do vet my vendor before I engage them, and I do make sure that I have the appropriate security controls in place. But ensuring that a vendor made a change by working with us through our change management process and made, was approved to make that change, I, I, you know, I'm not there yet. Uh, and, I, and I think what m many organizations need is a single secure tool to allow third parties access that I can control. 
I can revoke, just as I revoke all of my other accounts in a timely manner. And then it, 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 indisc- you know, and it's not indiscriminate access. It's you are the vendor to support this. You go from here to there. That's act, you know, and I can control it. I, that's also something I think we need because otherwise, this whole third-party supply chain thing is is definitely going to get us again. Yeah, and that's it, that's such a great point. And um, let's talk a little bit. To, I know the the kind of OTICS side is near and dear to your heart. You've been you know dealing with that for a long time. And you, you touched on a lot of things about it, right? I mean, if we just step back and look at those devices, right? Uh, they're in, you know, uh, not only a poor state of security, but the, the state of that security just continues to dwindle. I mean, that average age of firm where you talked about it on these things is seven to 10 years old. They're, they're riddled with eight, nine, and 10 critical vulnerabilities. Ports and protocols like Telnet and others are wide open. Most organizations don't work, know where they are. Certificates are expired. I mean, they're, they're, they're a mess for all intent and purposes. And then, of course, you have kind of this issue with the collision, obviously, of IT and OT. And then you have the team. So you have the operators on one side and the network defenders on the other. They don't really work together too well. Are CISOs in general kind of like you? I mean, are they knowledgeable of this? Uh, you know, are they kind of approaching this in a better way today than in the past? Is that improving or is it kind of flat to downward? How do you see that? No, I think they are increasingly aware. Anybody that's, you know, getting any kind of uh, um, industry briefings and, and is paying attention knows what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. and, and anybody that's been at this a while knows that every time we plug a hole, um, the bad guys move on to the next hole. And there's way more um, holes and opportunities for them than, than there is for us. So yep. uh, when there weren't vendors in this space, there were a lot of folks that shrugged their head and, and shrug, you know, it's the serenity prayer. Give me the wisdom to, to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference, right? So if I can't do anything about it, you know, I have to accept the risk. So with the advent of the tools, I think that there's been a, a lot of interest. Um, and some people have said, well, I don't want to buy another tool. And they talked maybe their existing vendors if there's something that's already got the real estate. So if uh-huh. I've got a vulnerability engine that can scan OT, and here's one of the issues. And, and this was probably the, the surprising lesson I learned from my agricultural customers. They're eager for this. The frustration is that most of the, the security vendors speak IT. They don't speak OT. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, right, they're dangerous on those devices. Right, right? now, I think you guys still use the term scan, although it's not a scan. You use that term to describe what you do because that's what the industry has come to understand is that process. I need to evaluate that asset for weakness. Correct. Now, you're doing it by evaluating network traffic because if you're not doing it that way, if you're not doing a, a passive analysis, you could put that thing in jeopardy. It could freeze up, it could lock, it could it could die. Uh-huh. And now we have real consequences. So I, I think that there is a much greater awareness now that we've got to stop with technical specific policies and procedures, right? Follow the data. And that's always been the right answer. And I think many people operate this way already. Others out of, out of necessity have to, you know, focus on what they can. Um, sometimes it's a question of the, the authority and, and the sphere and the scope of responsibility that the, the CISO has been given. And But that's okay. Then advocate and, and call it out and, and point to it. And um, look, I, I, I would be lying if I said I didn't feed uh, my, my external auditors issues every now and then. Because if it shows up in an audit report, we got to do something about it. I've been yelling uh-huh. and screaming and, and, and couldn't get you know, people to attend to it. Um, I think the other thing that's driving this is, uh, well, two other major drivers. Number one, if there isn't a regulation, and, and I've had the, the privilege of working in some of the most heavily regulated uh, sectors, and I say privilege because then I'm not the crazy person saying we have to do this. There's an external uh, requirement. We chose to go into that sector. We chose to work with those companies and, and that type of data. And they're flowing these requirements down to us. It's an expectation. It's an understanding. Um, again, if you don't want to do that, go into a different sector, pick a different different line. But in other cases, you know, certain industries don't have that. So, so what comes into play? It's, you're supposed to do what's reasonable and appropriate, reasonable and customary. Um, I've never met a reasonable person in my life, certainly not in a courtroom. I don't know what that means. The best definition <laughs> I've ever gotten is if 51% of your industry is doing it, 
you need to be doing it too, or have a good explanation for why you're not doing it. So uh, I, I see us with this issue, we're at that tipping point. Most people are aware that they need to be doing something about it. If they don't have an appreciation for how big the problem is, they can work with the vendor, they can do a trial, they can do a proof of value, they can get some of the numbers and go, oh, wow, we've got we've got a big problem here. No, we, we're, we're in reasonably good shape, and then go from there. So at least take that step. Yeah, is visibility still kind of a big starting issue, right? Just what the heck do I have? Where is it? I mean, how can I even do what you just said you need to do if I don't even know what I have and where it is and what's the state of it? And So, so here's the yeah. other job of the CISO is when you're having that conversation and informing them, it's not just of the requirements, it's also impact. My goal is to try to figure out a way to do what we need to do without it having an undue impact. But there is going to be impact. Uh, you know, and I don't just mean any change. There's, there's an impact with any kind of change in any part of our operations. You know, leadership has to have your back. The CISO has to have people's back. There is going to be some impact. It shouldn't be undue. We don't want to get in the way, uh, but it has to be a yes, but. This is the way to do it. You can't do that thing. You know, as an example, we have DLP engines. And I know for years that when the rules were created, I would try to do research on a new vulnerability or a new virus, or a new piece of malware. Well, the, the engines are looking at that, and they think it's the thing. So they're uh, blocking my ability to get to that resource to investigate or to learn how others are addressing it. So I'd have to have an exception rule. So rather than manually process an exception, you know, the tool's built so that they could have a rule that would echo back to the user. Are you really sure? Well, is the organization prepared to entrust individuals at that level? Are people simply going to click through and, and ignore it, or are they going to pay attention to it? Um, uh, so. You know, that, that's kind of where we're navigating. I think a lot of organizations now, that, that's their journey with respect to some of this. Do you think on the OT side that it's the regulatory mandates that are kind of get OT to the level it needs to be? Do you think it's organizations telling their vendors, hey, you have to make more secure devices for us or give us a path to take a device and update it more easily or uh, secure it more easily? Or do you think it has to come from the actual vendors, the the Honeywells, the Siemens, the Aventus, and those folks pushing it down saying, hey, we understand there's a risk here, so we're going to build more secure stuff. And maybe it means you have to pay a separate license for the secure version. I don't know. Um, does it have to come down from that end? But what's, what's going to push this? Or do we have to have some just massive event to occur before uh, all three of those sides step up and say, all right, we've been, we've been kind of putting this in the parking lot for a while, but now we actually have to bring it in and we have to address uh, this collectively. Well, jokingly, I would say all of the above, but but let me let me get specific. Yeah, um, I think there are really two two drivers uh, of change: um, money and pain. Um, and there is a relationship between those two things as well as 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 them being individual. So, pain is never let a good disaster go to waste. Hopefully, it's a disaster that happened to somebody else, not you. Uh -huh. uh, and you you know, then the next question you get from your board or from leadership is, could that happen here? Oh, you bet. Right? How likely is it? Well, that's where it could be a little bit different. No, it, for us, it's a little less than that peer of ours because we have these things in place, so we're okay. Oh, no, we're even worse. We better step up and do something immediately. Uh, yeah. So pain tends to be the major driver. But money, and, and money can be bi-directional. I've had very good success recently, and maybe it's because of the state of play at the organizations who are engaging me as a VC so. So they have nothing. They're not ready for the full-time CISO. They're engaging the VCSO. So that's kind of an interesting place. One of the things that has happened, the cyber insurance market, most of us are required to have some level of coverage. It's a condition our customers expect of us. In order to qualify for insurance and get it at rates that are preferable, you have to have some basic hygiene in place. Uh -huh. The problem is the insurance questionnaires... This is one of my other soapbox topics, so you know, please indulge me here. There's a couple of problems. One, the insurance questionnaires, the applications. First of all, um, there's a lot of us that want to say what we plan to do. If we're going after business, maybe it's an RFP, and the customer says, I need really strong security and you don't have it, okay, I'll build it for you. If I win this piece of business, I fully intend to, with integrity, I'm going to build you all the things you want. I haven't invested in it now because I don't have the case, but as soon as that project and that business, I can, I can make a sound case. You uh -huh. can't say that on an application for insurance. You have to describe what <laughs> is right now. 
If you fill it out, in, even if it's future speak, you fully intend to do it. If it's not actually in place, it's called insurance fraud. There's financial penalties <laughs> yeah. and other consequences. And the insurance company could use your false answer as the basis for denying a claim. Yeah. So that's issue one. Second, the insurance companies don't know what they're doing. I don't mean to insult them. This is a statement of fact. They... In everything else they do, they had good actuarial data. I'm going to sell you a life insurance policy. You will die. We haven't solved that problem. You will die. How quickly you die? Well, look, you've got these indicators, these risk factors. You smoke. You're a diabetic, whatever. And, and therefore, we're going to price that policy accordingly. Well, I don't think they understood the breach was kind of inevitable. They didn't understand how prevalent it was going to be, what it was going to cost. And they took a bath. And now they're trying to make up for their losses by on the backs of the industry. Three, four, five X in terms of renewals is what we're seeing. So clearly I get engaged by my customers and these help us with this. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Some of the questions just are, are, are wrongly worded. They'll say something like, do you use this technology everywhere? Well, just like when we were taking tests, I was worried about the all or none. Oh, uh -huh. everywhere? This is what got Joe in trouble uh, it, it, with, with, with Uber, because he was asked, was all this data encrypted? He said, yes. Even if I had a report that somebody handed me on my way into the courtroom that said 100% of our stuff is encrypted, I would never give 100% guarantee, because technology moves. Somebody just stood up a new server. Somebody disabled something. Who knows, right? So uh -huh. all or nothing is problematic. Other questions will say, do you use this technology? Well, think about it. If, it, if, if I'm at 99% coverage... I can't answer the first question, so they're going to think it's way more risky than it is. Or if they ask the question, do I use it at all, but I only use it for 1%, now I can take credit for something they don't think is risky, and I've got a huge gap. So they're not really getting at the question of risk. So what I've had to do is provide addendum that go along with the application to put things in context when I know that they're going to infer a negative conclusion. Perfect example, how many employees do you have? So for one customer, we said, whatever the number was, 4,000 people. Next question, how many of them have MFA? Not how many of them need MFA, or how many of those who need have MFA have it? How many? So if you say 4,000 employees, if the next number is in 4,000, risk. Well, hang on a second. This is a manufacturing customer. They have manual punch clocks for time. These folks don't have email addresses. They come in in steel tip shoes, and they're working in a factory floor. They don't need MFA. The office workers have it, 100%, but you didn't ask that question. So I have to put that into perspective. And I was able to do that. The first year for this one customer, their renewal came back at about 3x. I got it almost back to the original renewal by, by, saying we, by giving them that context. The next year, because we had built a plan, here's our posture, here's our plan. We'd started making investments and moving our posture, uh, enhancing our posture, lowering our risk. We actually got a reduction in the premium. And the broker even said to us, I don't know what you guys are doing. You should do this for other customers because nobody's getting a discount in their cyber policies. So for us, there's a huge opportunity now to be able to say, because you know the, the, the return on your security investment has always been a challenge. It's not, I kept the bad thing from happening and then the bad thing didn't happen. How do I know that it didn't happen because of what I did and just simply didn't happen because we weren't targeted at all? Here, uh -huh. I was able to say, we made this investment and we got this. In one case, I got a million dollar reduction in the cyber and the premiums. That, you know, I got to change the way I do business. I got to price it so I get a piece of that savings. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's true, right, that the other complexity, I mentioned this too, Jason, is when you look at the IoT, the OT, all these cyber physical systems relative to this cyber insurance, and you look at the state of them, I mean, default credentials, 75% of the, the credentials on these devices are running default and never been changed. I mean, something like low-hanging fruit like that, that can also present challenges on the cyber insurance side, right? If you have the huge piece of your estate or your attack surface that kind of isn't being addressed. I mean, firmware, no patching, credentials are default. Uh, is that a challenge as well? Of course. Um, I think there is a Prisma maturity model, which Matter. allows you to get at risk in a much more intelligent and appropriate way. It's not Boolean. It's not, uh, yeah. you know, there are certain things in life that are Boolean. You're pregnant or you're not. You are secure or you're not. I don't like the term security, right? I don't even know what that means. For something to be secure, I'd have to turn this computer off, disconnect it from the network, lock it up in a box, put the box in the closet, and put a guard on the closet. 
Yep. Is it secure? I have no idea. I know that it's perfectly useless in that state, right? And you know, by definition, we are going to use these things. And by using them, we're going to put ourselves and our customers and our data at risk. And the question is, how do we uh, achieve that balance? So yep. when I evaluate a pick a framework, pick a security control, am I doing it? It's not yes or no. It's how well am I doing it? Because in a lot of corporate, you know, so the prison model is, you know, basically, um, I have a policy that says I will do it. I have a process for doing it. I'm actually doing it. I'm collecting data about doing it. And then I'm using that data to, to optimize things. Well, there's plenty of organizations that are not at that level, a fifth level of maturity. Some cases they're doing it, but it's not even documented. So that's good. We're keeping the bad guy out. Now I have a different risk, right? What if somebody on my team that I'm relying on wins the lottery and chooses not to come in the next day? Whoa, I don't have anything documented. I don't have anything to hand to somebody to, to come in even on a supplemental basis or if I give it to somebody else to say, this is how we do these things. And I think we're running so lean that that's more prevalent than, than people could imagine. I think people are increasingly looking to the cloud to do much of this for them. Strongly encourage that solution. But understand, you can get about 40% of what you need from the cloud provider at best, right? They were, you know, you're, you're buying their infrastructure. You don't manage it. They care for that. But if there's an issue, they alert it to you. You need to have a team to follow up with investigation. You need to have incident response. You need to train your people. So, you know, CSA has a shared responsibility model. High Trust has one. There's a couple different ones that basically say you can't inherit everything. Cloud providers, I think, are finally starting to wake up and realize that the more they can do for their customers, the more they can charge for. The reason I went with you guys is because Microsoft solution is not effective. It doesn't provide me the coverage I need. It doesn't do everything I need. But if there was something that they offered and I could get it by just checking an additional box and it was already included in my enterprise license, how would you not want to at least consider that, right? Now, it may not do everything or it may not do it well, but the, the labor cost, the maintenance cost, there are other things to be considered. Yep. And, and Jason, as, as we wrap up here and this conversation could go on for hours and hours, you, you definitely have some great, uh, great feedback for those of our listeners that are uh, CISOs or other security leaders that have large OT and or IOT internet of medical things, internet of military things, wh whatever that genre, any advice that you can give to them in terms of, some approaches they can take to to start to get their hands around this and and, and really address some of the risks related to yeah, sure assets. well number one admit that you have this problem if you deny it it's like people in the early stages who denied that they were using the cloud you have ot i, I guarantee you you have unmanaged ot guarantee oh, that as well and i know that firmware is the stuff that it never wanted to change you know what the perfect example probably would have been the bios back in the day if i mess with the bios and stuff goes sideways i lose my job so i'm not going to touch it uh -huh. so you should have some sort of discovery capability if you even need that so that you understand the size and scope of the problem then you need to look at your architecture is that stuff segmented or not um Understand that many of the OT vendors, and, 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 and the numbers on this, are, are especially in the medical space, are, are outstanding. A lot of the traffic is not encrypted. That's a problem that you need to uh -huh. solve. We're not even talking about the devices themselves, but an overwhelming percentage of the devices have never been patched or maintained. And, and we know that, you know, you know, I should look for, see if I can find it. The dawn of the internet, there was something called the San Diego experiment, where these guys uh, at some you know, academic institution in, in California put an unpatched server directly on the internet. And I think it took like three months for the world to find it and to, to, to own it. And then they recreated that same experiment more recently. And it took like less than a minute for it to be pumped, <laughs> right? Yeah. All of this stuff is vulnerable. And if I can find it, if I can enumerate it, if I can, all sorts of bad things you know, can happen from it. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I bet you guys, I'm sure, have estimates. To me, it's probably about a third of the devices on my network are, are OT devices as, as a yep. rough, you know, rough yep. count. Well, think about that. You know, we just said the bad guys only have to find one hole. We got to find them all. And I've got a great yeah. vulnerability management program for my IT. I need to extend that to OT. Um, so, yeah, so that's the and, first thing. And, yeah. and understand that there's a lot more to OT than you think. What's this? I don't care. It, you know, to me, that I'm going to make up T-shirts. There is no I. There is no O. It's all just T, right? It needs to be owned and or managed, even if you want to allow bring your own thing. It still needs to be managed. And, and your, your customers have that expectation. And the regulators have this expectation. Most of those cyber insurance renewals, I had to fill out a supplement specific to OT. 
Yeah. Um, so I would use that as the driver, as the attention getter, especially if there's a supplement and you look at those questions and you don't think you have good answers, or if you think that providing those answers are because you have to pay an expensive premium, you know, I think that's the, the, the attention. Then um, you, you need to start with some policies. Policies at least are a start. Thou shalt not do it this way. I don't have a technical enforcement control mechanism yet. Uh, and a lot of these cases, again, you asked the question, Brian, this has been the case for anything that we got from anybody else ever. If we weren't asking them or demanding more of them, and I don't bust Microsoft for not providing more. I don't bust Amazon for not providing more as a cloud provider. Once they finally realized that there was revenue to be made by providing the services, suddenly they started listening to, you know, to what we were saying. But shame on us. If we're not more, de- why, why, nobody's going to do more if, if, if there aren't consequences for not doing it. Now, I'm not saying that has to be on the on a punishment side or on a regulatory side. I don't want any more regulations. We need to just be more demanding. So shame on us if we're not doing that. I would like certain industry groups to get together. Um, I have standard security clauses that I encourage our legal teams and our contracts team to get inserted when we have the opportunity to redline a document. Right? Um I think there needs to be many organizations have finally gotten to the point where they're addressing the OT threat at time of initial acquisition. This is, this is part of your stack on an ongoing basis. Once you continue to, once you connect it, this is, this is not a one-time thing. For every project, there needs to be the program. Um, I think yeah. that we as an industry need to have Yelp reviews, right? Because I have to vet that third party's technology. Well, if I didn't have to do it myself... If there was an industry that could, I could look at and say, we, this has been vetted, right? It's, it's, it's how did that app get to the Google Play Store, right? Epic has an orchard in healthcare. There's an Epic, uh, uh, an ecosystem where they vetted that product and you can't even install it if they didn't say it was okay. Great. That, ma- that makes it much easier. We're solving it as an industry, not as an individual. We're not each duplicating effort. So, um, and then you also mentioned a very important thing. It's not just about the, the vulnerabilities. It's about the fact that this got configured or didn't get this figured default credentials it's not integrated uh, with your, your pam or your pim solution uh for those kinds of problems and and, w- and one of the other problems that we haven't even talked about i haven't seen any issues of it but anecdotally I, I, when i was at general dynamics one of the programs that we have is the warfighter network um as you may know uh this is how the Pentagon talks to forward deployed. You know, in, in Napoleon's day, armies traveled on their stomachs. Well, that's when you walk to war. It's not, that's not, it's not about food anymore. It's about intel. What's over that rise? What's awaiting me? What direction do I have to aim? You know, th- those kinds of things. Well, that network relied on satellites for communication, satellites that we didn't put up because at the time we had a space shuttle program. So we relied on our friends in China and, and France to put those up. What would we do if, if China said to the United States, hey, do me a favor. we got a communication satellite we'd like you to put in orbit for us. We would, we would willingly put that up there. But I guarantee you there'd be a little extra payload on there. I'm not worried about anybody intercepting the data. I'm worried about the fact that that, that bird's going to point in a different direction or mysteriously go boom, right? Yeah. So where I'm going to is the embedded firmware threat. I don't hear anybody talking about this. We hear about SIM jacking, right? We hear about phone cloning. We hear about RF issues, and we all have these special wallets now so our our stuff doesn't get compromised. Uh, If I go into another country and I go to one of those airport vendors that's selling me a SIM card, I don't know what's on that SIM card. What's, you know, and and, and the the chip makers have alerts that will alert you to a change in the firmware. What What if it was on the firmware when it got made? Nobody's yep. opening up the chassis of a server and inspecting things at that level. Well, that too. I mean, again, I'm not saying that's something that everybody has to do. That's, that's probably beyond the need for many organizations. But depending on what sector you're in, depending on how critical your, your information is, you may need to evaluate taking things to that level as well. Yeah. Well, I'm going to assume, and that might be a little presumptuous, but I'm going to assume, Jason, that, and I know you have a lot of, as a CISO, you have a lot of things to worry about. You're probably worried about that one third of these estates, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, and I'm guessing it's actually a real valid threat and you're worried about it. And uh, that's usually the question of the day. And it's been this so insightful, fantastic discussion. Jason, thanks so much for joining us out there publicly. Jason, is there anywhere our listeners could find you? Is there anywhere you want them to find you? Do you speak publicly? Are there places they should look for you? Yes, to all of the above. 
um, I'm on LinkedIn. That is the that's sort of the one indulgence to social media that I will do. I'm, I'm on the other platforms, but not in my own name. Um, I have several <laughs> online persona that I cultivate because if I'm going to be going into deep and dark web circles, um, I need them to trust me and I don't want to get narked out and have the conversation end abruptly before I get to the good stuff. <laughs> so LinkedIn's a good place and then we can start a conversation from there. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much. And remember, everybody, the IoT Security Podcast is brought to you by Phosphorus, the leading provider of proactive, full scope, and unified security management for the extended Internet of Things. Thanks so much again to our guests, Jason Tall. And until we meet again, everybody, I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contes. And we'll see you all next time on Phosphorus Radio. Thanks for listening to this episode of the IoT Security Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe so you can join us again. While you're at it, leave a review. Find out more about IoT security and the podcast at phosphorus.io. See you next time on the IoT Security Podcast.